pick it up, whoa, pick it up from there. Uh, so, this is the doctrine of Scripture, bibliology, as you can see in the title. Uh, the categories that we uh, would cover, or that we did in the past, what we're going to look at today is just Revelation, the second part of Revelation, and then next week we'll look at inspiration. And hopefully we can get to canonization and transmission, and we looked several weeks ago at translation, so we've done it a little bit out of order. But I think there are a lot of questions about how do we know the books in the Bible are in fact the ones given to us by God? How was that determined? How does that look in church history? How did that take place? Uh, we hear a lot of attacks on scripture, particularly from liberals and those who want to attack the Bible uh, in those areas. And so it, that's a helpful way for us to have confidence uh, about the Bible, the word of God. And then transmission. You know, how do we know that what Moses wrote on the plains of Moab in the 15th century B.C. is uh, accurately recorded for us here in uh, 2014. How do we know that? How can we have confidence of that? And so that's what transmission covers, and it's really quite, quite glorious. But we want to begin uh, at the beginning of all of that, which is Revelation. Uh, not the book of Revelation, but the idea of Revelation, the concept of Revelation. Uh, just by way of reminder... Again, we mentioned this a few weeks ago. You could listen to it online if, you want, if you're interested uh, to do that. But, but understanding uh, how we know what we know is basic to everything. The fancy word for that is, does anybody know? What's a fancy word for that? How we know what we know, what we, how we, what's kind of the source of our knowledge? Does anybody, it's epistemology. Have you all ever heard that term? Okay. Uh, but that it is. But for us, uh, then when we come to Scripture... We are um, coming to what we hold to be the very words of God. So with all the authority, all the sufficiency, and everything else that that means, that's how we, as Christians, approach the Word of God, and for good, good reason. Uh, we've often heard people say, you know, to me this passage means, or to me God is, or so on and so forth. And we would reject that. We'd, we would say... Doesn't really, it doesn't really matter what it means to you, right? It matters what it means to God and how we're to understand what he has said uh, in his word. So all of this is, falls under then the doctrine of uh, scripture. You know, every, every religion, and really not even every religion, but every um, person uh, claims to, to have uh, some kind of knowledge, make some affirmation, even if somebody says, God doesn't exist, then where that gets, needs to get challenged is on what basis do you say that? What gives you the authority? What makes you the final one who can say that? And so we would actually deal at an epistemological level. I didn't pronounce that right. But at that level of how do you, how do you know what you know? How do you ground that knowledge? Uh, what, what's your basis of confidence? But every re revealed religion, if you'll have uh, sacred scriptures, if you were uh, a Muslim, it would be the Quran. If you were Buddhist, you would have sacred, your sacred writings. Uh, they don't have a book, but they have writings that are regarded as sacred and regarded as holy and so on and so forth. Uh, and for Christians, we have the Bible, which is utterly unique, utterly unique. But the point I'm only making here is that we all claim, man claims revelation for something, something revealed to them, something that they're, they're resting on. And for us, that is scripture and for good good reason uh, it is clearly uh, claims to be the word of god and it stands uh, every test to 
uh, validate that claim that it is in fact God's word and it has been given to us by the maker and the creator of all things who's ultimately revealed in Christ. Now stop me at any point. I'm going to go through these first couple of slides rather quickly. Um, but, you know, stop. Oh, uh, Ted or somebody, I have handouts. Will you grab them? I think they're in, uh, they might be in my study. I may have left them on the corner of the desk. Might want to knock uh, Parker's in there. Uh, so we'll give handouts with these slides. So in, I put them all on one slide so you can take notes if you, if you want to. Revelation. So the question becomes, how can we know anything that we know? And that, again, falls under because it has been revealed to us. The, the term for that is apocalypsis. Actually, that's the, the opening words of Revelation. That's where that title comes from for the book. Uh, it has the basic meaning, basic meaning, of uncovering what was concealed. Making something known that was unknown. Uh, the self-disclosure of God, then, is his making known what would otherwise uh, be unknown. Now, the question I want to really get to, though, is the necessity of revelation. Why do we need revelation? Why is special revelation necessary? Can anybody just maybe give some ideas there? What do you, why do you think revelation is necessary? Just the concept. You, you could actually, you know, not look at the screen. <laughs> well, well, one, it's up there. I guess I should have asked this before I put the screen up there. But one is, do what? Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Um, one, revelation is necessary because God is infinite and man is finite. In other words, there's this, this gap, this gulf that exists between a transcendent God and us who are mere creatures, uh, who are man, and he is God. So we need God to speak to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Does anybody have that verse memorized? Should we do a sword drill? See who can... Uh, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to you and you know, to your children. There are secret things that only God can know, but what God has determined is necessary for us to know that he has revealed. Also, because man has fallen and Satan is a deceiver. Again, we're, we covered this in more detail before. This is a reminder. Uh, because man has fallen and Satan is a deceiver, we need God to reveal himself to us because not only are we in need because of our creatureliness, because of our humanness, because of our finiteness, uh, but we're also in need because since Genesis 3, we have what is called the fall of man. We are now have, in addition to our creatureliness, wickedness, pollution that blinds us to those things that are, would otherwise be knowable. Um, sin blinds our eyes. That's why, what are some of the descriptions for man and sin in Scripture? Darkness, right? He walks in the dark, they, they don't see where they're going. What's another description? Futility of their minds. Yeah, I mean, you all know these, futility of their minds. What's another description? Sick, uh, deceived, dead. These are all descriptions of us in our fallen state. Those are things that then work against us that would blind us to things that would otherwise be known. So God then needs to overcome that. 
Uh, Satan is a deceiver. We often uh, sometimes don't mention that as a direct reason, but, but Satan is a deceiver. In terms of world religion, they are satanic. I don't know that we hear that very much, but they are satanic. They are from the evil one. Yes, they're from men in one sense, but men who are under the influence of the evil one. That's why it's called in Scripture more than one time the doctrine of demons. False religion, idols, are the doctrines of demons. Uh, he told the leaders of Israel, you're of your father who? The devil. He's the one that's influencing you. He is the one who is behind your thinking, who has created this false system of religion that you're resting in. So Satan is a deceiver, and so we need God to reveal himself to us. Okay, types of revelation. Now, there are different types of revelation. Uh, there is what is general revelation. General revelation, as it says on your slide, is information that is available to all people at all times and in all places. That's why it's called general revelation. A good definition on there is disclosure of God in nature, in providential history, and in the moral law within the heart, whereby all persons and all times and all places gain a rudimentary, that is a, a basic, a fundamental understanding of the Creator and his moral demands. That's, that's a good definition. Now, when we say general revelation, we are in a technical sense. Now, there's a broad sense where we could include these things. But in a technical sense, in a biblical sense, in this narrowly defined way that God has uh, defined general revelation for us that we'll look at. Uh, discoveries of science would not really fit into that in, in, a, in a narrow sense. Because they're not available to all people in all places at all times. Right? They're, they're available to those who have them. If you live in America and you go to a university, you're going to have information that somebody in Africa doesn't have. But yet general revelation is a category that would equally apply to both. And so in a very narrow sense, those things would not be general revelation. If we define it just loosely and broadly, then yes it would because it has to do with uh, God's creation. But even those, we wouldn't because they come with an uncertainty. Scientific discoveries are, discoveries are sometimes proven to be wrong. Sometimes scientific affirmations are at other times shown to be incomplete, and so the information wasn't total. So you see how that's a different category than what Bible, the Bible describes as general revelation. It is accurate. It is the same in every place to all people. Uh, it does not change. It is consistent. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't technically, we wouldn't really want to call all of those discoveries and those kind of things, general revelation, only in the loosest kind of sense. But that's not really what we're getting at theologically and in terms of what the Bible describes as general revelation. You know, stop me at any point if you have uh, thoughts about that. But what, what are the categories then of general revelation in terms of Scripture as far as what he, uh, God lays out to us as general revelation? Well, one, the first one is creation. Creation. Uh, creation is the first and the most basic and fundamental aspect of general revelation. We have been memorizing with the girls as we're walking through some of this with them. Uh, Psalm 19.1. Who, who knows Psalm 19.1? Uh, if I start you, you'll get it. The heavens. Yes. <laughs> that it. Uh, it's beautiful. That's beautiful. 
Yes, so the the heavens are telling of uh, the glory of God or declaring the glory of God, the expanse, his handiwork, or the work of his hands. Uh, They're day-to-day pours forth speech, right? And yet there is no words. Their sound is not heard. Their line runs throughout the end of the earth. In other words, it's communicating something to us, uh, creation is, but not in words, just simply by what it is. A display of the glory of God. Negatively, um, Romans 1, 18 through 20. And we're going to touch on this again in just a bit. But uh, negatively, that revelation that of the glory of God. Uh, Calvin said a statement. Uh, I'm going to loosely quote it. But there's, there's nowhere that the eye can meet that we don't see some glimpse or sparkle of the glory of God. You can't look anywhere that you don't see some part of the glory of God. And that's how it is. And so, in terms of general revelation and creation as a means of judgment, what does Paul say men are for not seeing that? Do you remember in Romans 1.18? Without excuse. Without excuse. Without excuse. Because it is so plain. It is so clear. It is so obvious. I once heard a, a pastor say, um, talk, mentioning this in a point, but he basically said, you know, was, was talking about some of the aspects of creation and can imagine that when an unbeliever would maybe, if someone were to stand before God, you know, in judgment and say, you know, but, but I didn't know, I didn't see it, or, or try to explain away as evolution will, these amazing things of creation which evolution simply cannot give a satisfactory answer for, that, that God's response is just going to be like, <laughs> what? Are you serious? I mean, this is so plain. This is so clear. And so that's, that's creation. It's general revelation. What does general revelation, what does creation tell us about God? Don't be shy. Huh? Well, basically that there is a God. That there is a God. What else? Don't be shy. I mean, we're just, I mean, you, there's, this could go on for a long time just listing the things. What? His goodness? Yeah, he's a provider. He's a God who's created a world in which we have abundance and joy and pleasure. So this God who's made of it is a good God. He's a wise God. What else does it tell us? He's wise. It's amazing how these things fit together. It's amazing. It just is mind-boggling. It just leaves you dumbfounded. I mean, when you look at even the most basic things and then see how all that fits together in a universe is just, I mean, you feel like less than nothing. What, what else? His wisdom? Glory? I mean, we could go on. His goodness, his wisdom, his glory, his power, his, all of these things are a part of what we see in creation. Notice, if you will, when you read through Scripture, and I, I'm sure you do notice this, but um, notice how often God uses creation to make a spiritual point, to teach something. He uses, we know particularly in the life of Jesus and the Gospels, we see that all the time. Look at the birds of the air. See how God speeds them? Look at the flowers. See how they, they do? And those types of illustrations are throughout. See how God causes His Son to rise. On the wicked and the evil. That's 
always, and the, particularly the prophets, uh, creation is used as a means to teach us something about God. Now that would actually fall into special revelation, what I mentioned. But the idea is, my point is, is just that God created creation in a way uh, that we are to see his glory and understand how he works in it. Uh, so creation. Uh, what else? Conscience. Conscience. What is the conscience? Who wants to define the conscience? How would you define that? Anybody? Don't be shy. It's okay. We're all friends. Okay, knowing the difference between good or bad, the conscience is, the conscience is just that. It's Romans 2.14. You all know this passage? It's, uh, Romans 2.14 is pretty plain. He says, um, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, uh, these not having the law are law to themselves. In other words, that just the reality that they know right or wrong becomes to them something by which they're judged, is the idea there. Uh, they show in verse 15 the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. So that's what the conscience does. It bears witness. It tells us. It gives a testimony. Uh, it, it evaluates and judges our deeds and our thoughts and our works is the idea. Uh, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So what does it do? It bears witness. It accuses for wrong. And it defends for right. Now, that's not uh, perfect. In fallen man, is it? Not even in Christians. We have it constantly made more sensitive and more in line with the truth. With unbelievers, it's not because I have lots of things that didn't bother my conscience at all before I was, uh, at, you know, and we all can attest to that. That later did. That because of regeneration. But the point is, at a basic level, even as bad as we were, even a, a wicked person has some sense of right and wrong, some sense of conviction generally. Um, that's the point that he's making. So that's conscience. So what does conscience tell us about God in terms of general revelation? That there's a right and wrong. That this, so if we follow that, that there is a God who made everything, this God who is glorious, and that there is a sense of right and wrong before this God, that if I see it, this God sees it. Right? This God who knows all things. So if I know I've done wrong, this God who created all things surely knows I've done wrong, and I need... A repair in this relationship. So that's what it should tell us. I need reconciliation. Uh, it should tell us that. Uh, general cre uh, creation. Uh, or general, excuse me, general revelation. Um, a third way that we don't often think of, it's been mentioned, uh, is providence. Providence. Now, again, let me just throw that out there to you. Uh, I know it's, it's hard when you're on the other side to... To maybe have things immediately come to your mind. But in what, what way might providence be fit into the category of general revelation? Now there's passages there. I'm going to read just one. Or we, but what, what, what way would it strike you that providence would be part of general revelation? That would be a part of it. I think we could say that. Uh, Heidi said that knowing things that are not in your control. So one part of that maybe is if you, I think this is what you mean, is that as we live life, we see things happen that we can't explain. Even an unbeliever will say that. Now they'll attribute it to other things, lucky or whatever. But there are things, that is in fact a witness that should be thinking rightly apart from sin blinding us to God's work. 
uh, we would say God did that. God was working in such a way that he brought this about. Um, that's one way. That's actually not the way I was thinking of. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm going to go somewhere else with it. But what is another way? Yeah, we, we would... That we should see there's, or at least that there's some kind of purpose, uh, that the universe doesn't just exist. That's basic to man. Let me just make one thing I forgot to mention, that our conscience is tied to being made in the image of God. We have a conscience because we're made in the image of God. Now, that would be really interesting to take that more further, but uh, just understand we're made in the image of God. We can't escape that. Uh, that's the argument, essentially, that Paul is basing uh, the gospel, his gospel explanation on in Romans 1. You know these things. You know these things. Um, because you bear the image of this creator. And so in order to hide that knowledge, you have to hold it down. Because it's a knowledge inside of you that's screaming all of the time. So you have to hold that down as an unbeliever. You have to find some way to silence that. Because it's there. Constantly bearing witness. This impulse within us to worship, is Paul's argument, uh, is there for a reason. That's because we were made that way. Um, but we hold that down, the true knowledge of God, and attach it to other things. So I just wanted to make that comment. Uh, Romans, Acts 14. Let me mention this. Acts 14. Uh, so Paul is, Paul is explaining the gospel here. He, he's preached the gospel they did a miracle, and now this pagan Gentile world uh, group wants to come, and they want to uh, worship him and Barnabas. Listen to what he says to them. Uh, why are you doing this? Verse 15 of Acts 14. Men, why are you doing these things? We're men of the same nature as you are. Preach the gospel that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. He did not leave himself without a witness. Okay, the idea of witness is very important. In that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, and so on. In Acts 17, we won't go there, you can read a similar thing about how he arranged the nations and set their boundaries that men might seek for God. So that's, that's general revelation. Uh, any questions about that before we move on? Providence right there. There would just be his general care for creation. His general ordering the events of the world. Uh, those are all fit under providence. Yeah, and Heidi brought that up. Right. Right, just so it can be heard, Janice was mentioning about uh, God's care in specific situations, like somebody escaping a storm or a dangerous situation uh, before uh, tragedy happened. And I think that's, Heidi, where you were going with it, with it too. Um, exactly. Now, interesting, and I just want to make a, a quick footnote here. Uh, so, somebody who was an atheist, because I've heard these arguments, would say, well, what kind of good God would do that? And now we're going to get to this later. We don't want to spend a lot of time. The, the answer is, is that makes a basic assumption that God, first of all, owes to anyone to save them. 
right? What's missing in those arguments is an understanding of God is holy and us is guilty. God doesn't owe that. The fact that God would do that to one by his choice, why we can't explain why this one and not this one, we, we start with the understanding that none deserve it. So if he chooses to show mercy to one, he has the freedom to do that. Uh, and we understand it as such. Uh, and what's been frustrating when I hear Christian apologists answer that, they, they, miss, they, they skip over the depravity part, the guilt part. And like that, that is the answer. If you skip over that, you have no answer but some philosophical answer, which ultimately doesn't have the authority behind it that it needs to. But nonetheless, that's a, that's a side note. So what are some of the purposes then of general revelation? Some of the purposes of general revelation. Let me suggest to you, not only suggest to you, but... Uh, uh, inform you as uh, from scripture what some of these purposes are and you're familiar with this first of all general revelation is a means of condemnation for unregenerate man for the unregenerate general revelation is a means of condemnation that's exactly how he uses it uh, and the Two passages we've mentioned, Romans 1, 18 through 25, and Acts 14, 15 through 17. It's a means of condemnation. The question may be asked, I'll ask it if you're not, uh, well, has anybody before the time of Christ, did maybe somebody when God was dealing specifically with the nation of Israel or before Israel respond to general creation or general revelation in a way that they were saved, uh, that they came in to know the grace of God. And I can only say to you that Scripture never gives any example of that. Never gives any example of that. The only way that to an unbeliever, Scripture presents general revelation as, as a means of condemnation uh, for not recognizing God. Now, I'm not going to repeat the answer, but we also answered last week of that in terms of somebody being saved now who doesn't hear the gospel in, in the remotest villages and such. So I won't repeat that here. Again, you can go back and listen to that if you want. But that is the way that he uh, presents it. Uh, general revelation is also a means of worship and faith for regenerate man. For regenerate man. For us, everywhere we see, we find reasons we should, if we're thinking rightly, and in line with the Spirit of God's work in our life, then we see God's glory. We feel a cool breeze on a fall day, and we thank God for it. And we think of how good He is. Where do we often feel the most uh, driven to pray? And, and sometimes when we're outside, walking in nature, people love to take prayer walks. I love to be outside. Looking at the sky, a blue sky, and for some reason to me, brings me a sense of the presence of God and nearness. Um, I, I would just, again, here's another little footnote to that. You know, when we see that w creation is worshipped by fallen men, it's because God designed creation to have a very powerful impact on us. So when you, people say that, oh, well, I don't go to church, but I feel closer to God, you know, when I'm out there and I've got my own, and they, they go out to creation. Some people worship creation as if it is their God. Or some have had animistic religions where they worship aspects of creation. It's because what we see in that is biblical truth. Yes, we would expect that to happen in a fallen heart because it does have such a powerful impression on us. We feel the glory of a beautiful landscape. 
We feel the power of going to the Grand Canyon or the edge of a cliff. We sing it in How Great Thou Art, the gentle breeze, the bird that sings softly in the trees. That's what he's getting at. We feel that power. Now, an unbeliever is not going to attribute that to God, but as a believer, we see those same things, and to us, it inspires worship. It promotes worship in our heart. It promotes in us a sense of wonder at the glory of God. When we look at uh, his power, his wisdom in the universe, in the largest part of what he's created to the smallest part of what he's created, uh, even to those things that we do know um, by science, in the sense of like the DNA and the way that that it does what God has it do in, in life, in the creation of life. So it is a means of worship for regenerate man. Uh, it's also general revelation cannot reveal, however, redemptive truths or specific information about God. Um, therefore, general revelation needs additional information and an authoritative interpretation. It needs additional information and authoritative interpretation. And that brings us into the next category. Special revelation. Special revelation. There is direct communication by God to man. So general is just general. It's there. It makes, a, it makes in a sense, uh, this general impression upon us about who God is and who we are uh, before this God. But it doesn't reveal specific information. Uh, that we need special revelation. Uh, direct, specific uh, truth given to us by God. Now, everybody makes some interpretation of the world. The question is, how do we make a proper interpretation? How do we rightly understand the world we live in? How do we rightly understand ourselves? And how do we have answers to ultimate questions? How do we have answers? Well, that's where special revelation comes in. Uh, this is where, again, in general, religion comes in. Man is looking in religion for some kind of answer to those questions. Uh, the problem is, is without understanding God's speaking to us in his word, ultimately in his son, and through the prophets, but particularly for us in the written word, then we're going to have only our own resources to draw from, and we're going to have the wrong answers. But special revelation is God supplying to us. It's those things revealed belong to you and to your children. And so that's where this comes in. Uh, so special revelation reveals specific truth ultimately intended to give knowledge of God through Christ. Let's just look at one of those verses. Romans 16. Let's look at Romans 16.25. Well, you know, for example, as, as we're turning there, we wouldn't know, apart from special revelation, we wouldn't necessarily be able to determine that God is a triunity, that he's Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, distinct and yet equal, we, we would never come to that. General creation does not reveal that to us, or general revelation does not reveal that to us. We, we get that from Scripture. That's a knowledge of God that we need Him to tell us uh, about. And exp uh, uh, Romans 16, 25 says this, and, and again, I'll, I'll read this only because if you, it's blank space on the recording if, if somebody else reads it. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages, but now is manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all nations leading to obedience 
of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Ultimately, as Paul is capturing here, and we'll, we'll move back from the revelation of Christ back, but, but ultimately, revelation is, special revelation is designed to lead us to a knowledge of Christ and his grace in Christ. That's where it's heading. He is the center of special revelation. And we'll come back to that point later, but I'll just make that there. Ultimately intended to give knowledge of God through Christ. It was a mystery. It was something that was maybe there in a hinted form, a shadow form, but it was unknown. And then it was revealed later about Christ uh, through the prophets by the Spirit of God. A special revelation reveals specific facts about the world. Creation. Would you look at creation and go, huh, you know, I bet, I, I bet it took six days to do this. And I bet God started with light and darkness and he separated those. And then he kind of put an expanse there and he separated the waters. And then he, and then he made birds and, and then he attached light to some of these. You would never get that, would you? We understand that from special revelation. God told us that. You would never understand uh, why we all have different languages. Uh, why do we know that? Well, we know that because of Genesis 11. He tells us why we have different languages. He tells us why we have the frustration of wanting to read things, but it's written in German. And so on and so forth. Uh, well, God tells us those things. We would never know about it. We wouldn't know specifically why is evil in the world. Why is sin in the world? How would you know that apart from God telling us? Well, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. But he tells us why sin is in the world. Look at Romans 7, 7, for example. Paul says here, Is then the law sin? May it never be on the contrary. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So while we have a conscience generally to tell us that we are guilty, I don't know specific sins apart from God revealing that to me. Um, here Paul is saying that that's the law. I came to know sin through the law. Uh, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. So now all of a sudden... A conscience informed by the word of God realizes, wow, there's a lot more sin in my heart than I even realized. And then as you grow as a Christian and you grow in the knowledge of the word of God and God's holiness, you realize there's a whole lot more sin in my life that I would have otherwise not. I would not have known the character of God in that way and specific commands to have known the depth of my sin in need of redemption. Uh, Special revelation reveals redemptive truth. We mentioned that Jesus Christ reveals the church. Uh, conversion. Let's look at Acts 26, 18 through 20, and then we'll kind of just speed it up a bit. Acts 26, 18 through 20. Paul's describing his mission. To open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So the message that went out by the power of the Spirit of God through, in this case, the Apostle Paul, was to open blind eyes to bring to the light those who were dwelling in darkness and understanding darkness. So 
that special revelation, particularly there, the truth about Christ and all that uh, goes with that. So direct types of special revelation. We're going to end with this. Uh, there are a variety of ways. One is direct speech. Direct speech, those the opening words of the Bible. And then God, God said, God said, then God said, let there be light. That would be an example of direct speech. Exodus 20, God is at Sinai. He's speaking directly uh, at some points there uh, to to the people, to the people, ultimately through uh, Moses. God spoke directly in Matthew 17, 5, there to the disciples. Do you remember that? The Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's direct speech. Direct speech through the prophets. So, uh, example there is... Uh, Exodus 4, 12. Now, in one sense, I mean, you could be rather technical there and say even that recorded on the Mount of Transfiguration is through the prophets because that's recorded for us on the pages of Scripture. But it's recording an event where we're narrowing out there where God actually did speak directly through direct speech. Uh, now, kind of broadening that, uh, direct speech through the prophets. Uh, when we read through the, scrops, uh, the prophets particularly, what is one thing that's striking? God's, how does God speak there? In the, think of grammar, in the first person, I, thus said the Lord, I, I, I. Well, who's writing that? Isaiah is writing that, and the other prophets. Uh, they're writing that, but yet they're recording direct speech. God is speaking directly through them. So that's one way. Uh, theophanies, Christophanies, does anybody know what those are? Anybody heard those? I know you've heard it. Uh, what a theophany or a Christophany, has anybody uh, that is a, Janice? Yeah. When God, when God appears in, in a human form, a theophany would even be broader than that, would include any time God's presence is revealed and made known and felt. So even like the cloud on Sinai would be like a theophany in that sense. God's presence, which is clearly God's presence, is being made known. Um, Christophanies would be... Uh, examples of and these are these are actually hard to determine that's a that's kind of a whole area of study there is where, where, where is it a the father who's manifesting or where is it necessarily a pre-incarnate son uh manifesting himself one clear example though we have of a pre-incarnate father is isaiah 6 1 through 7 that would be a christophany when we look at that in other words because it is clearly christ the pre-incarnate son who was revealing himself so isaiah before turning there does anybody know what goes on in Isaiah 6? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Do you remember that? His train filled the temple. Lord, there is Yahweh. I saw Yahweh. I saw God, our covenant God. Our God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Our God who spoke all things into existence. This is the God I saw high and lifted up uh, on the throne in this vision that Isaiah saw in the temple. Well, in John chapter 12... Uh, John directly attaches that, or Jesus, in, in John 12, directly attaches that, or excuse me, no, it's John's commentary, it directly attaches that to Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. So you have that there, John chapter 12, 41, we'll just mention that verse. Uh, John 12, 41, he says this, uh, after he mentions the 
a passage, a, por- a portion of the passage in Isaiah 40, uh, he says, or excuse me, Isaiah 6, he says in verse 41 of John 12, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. And the, the he and the him, his and him there, reference to Christ. You can read that. So he, through theophanies and Christophanies, miracles, visions, and dreams. He spoke often of, through miracles, visions, and dreams. Uh, that falls under in Hebrews chapter 1. You'll remember that he said he spoke in various manners, in very various ways. And these last days have spoken to us in a son. But before, he had a variety of ways. There were dreams, visions, prophets, uh, all of these ways that God spoke to his people. We don't always know. I mean, there's some parts that we just like when it says to the prophets sometimes that the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came to them. I mean, we don't know exactly what the dynamic of that was. But the word of the Lord clearly uh, came to them. And then it was recorded for us. Um, so you can look at those examples. For time's sake, we won't. Uh, the written word. The written word. And this is where we're going to start moving now uh, after this lesson. But the written word, do you realize that up until the time of Moses, there was no written word. There was no written scriptures. So when we look at Jacob and Abraham, when we look at Job, who was most likely in the patriarchal, not the patriarchal, but before the time of uh, the the pre-patriarchs. I think I'm blinking out on what the term is. But that he likely goes back then. There was no written word. So, like when God spoke to Jacob, he spoke in those times, and then that was it. He didn't go back to his Bible and look at those things. The same with Abraham. Uh, The same with uh, Isaac. And the same with Israel, why they were in Egypt. Uh, They did not have the written word. Do you know where the transition came? Well, of course, it was after Moses. It was not until Moses that there was the written word. And that was essentially the foundation of God's covenant manifesto, as it were, to his people. Establishing him, your God, the God of Israel, is the God of creation. And then here's how we got to where we are with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which they knew to some level because they were crying to God, you know, when they were in bondage. But it was with a very limited knowledge of him. But they did know that he was the God who was of their forefathers, and that they had an identity that related to him. But it was not until Joshua. When we come to Joshua, all of a sudden, what changes? Well, what changes is this. Now God says, don't let this depart from your mouth, this word. Meditate on it day and night. Then you will be courageous. Then you will be strong. Don't deviate to the right or the left. Then your way will be prosperous. But from that point on, the primary means of communication and the, the authoritative means to God's word was the written word of God. It was the written word of God. That was a dramatic change uh, now in how God was, in a sense, relating to his people. And in fact, all of the prophets are essentially addressing the people based on the law of Moses. So the law was to be kept throughout all generations. Uh, That's in Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomy 17, 18. It was to be the foundation of family and religious life and was the standard by which everything was to be tested. 
to the law, Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, then they have no dawn, they have no light. The word of God, the written word of God, the testimony of God, written on, not pages uh, there, but that was written down for his people, is the authoritative standard and foundation of how his people are to relate to him, how they're to know him, and how they are to relate to him, the written word of God. And so that's really where we're going to take it uh, from this point. Ultimately, though, uh, Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation. God is the ultimate revelation. This, we mentioned it earlier, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in a son. And how has he spoken to us in a son? Well, one way that he's spoken to us in the Son is the obvious way that the Son came, John 1.18, and he exegeted, he explained, he revealed the Father. We weren't there to hear him, though, were we? I wasn't. I don't think you were. Uh, we weren't there to hear them. We have even that ministry in Revelation the Son, though, ultimately through what is recorded to us on the pages of Scripture. These things have been written so that you might believe in the name of the Son of God and believing have life in his name. John 20. 20 or 21. 20. Uh, that is what we have the scriptures for. But now we have something glorious. We have the scriptures of anticipation in the Old Testament laying the foundation and then we have the scriptures of accomplishment and explanation in the New Testament. And then all of the glorious things that go along with that. So Luke 24, what is the law and the prophets, God, uh, okay, whatever. Um, we're all to point to Christ. Well, we'll pick it up with, uh, from there next week. Um, I didn't realize we went over. Let's go ahead and pray. Oh, were you still writing that down? Oh, okay. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Let me close. Father, thank you so much for uh, giving us your word. Thank you for this time. I pray that you would renew in us and deepen in us a sense of wonder at the written word we have before us and that we would know it is your word to us. Trustworthy, sufficient, reliable. How glorious to know the, the God of the universe has spoken to us. And help us to, again, wonder and marvel at that and mostly to wonder and marvel at what you've revealed to us there, which is the glory of your Son and all that you've done for us in him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.